0: So Archbishop Viganò released a letter and a series of accompanying videos and even interviews over the last day or so. And they're all too spicy for YouTube, so the letter is what follows this. In it, he links everything, the jab, vaccine, whatever, with the banning of the Latin mass, all of it. He links it all together. And he doesn't hold back. And because I can't put this on YouTube, if you clicked over to hear this from YouTube, I thank you. It is appreciated. I suggest you follow this here as a backup because it's always a good and a good way to make sure you don't miss anything. Without further ado, Archbishop Vigano. Lapides clamubunt, letter of Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano on Francis's modu proprio, Traditionis Custodes. I say to you that if these are silent, the stones will cry out. See the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 40. Traditionis custodis. This is the incipient, or beginning, or forced words, of the document with which Francis imperiously cancels the previous motu proprio, sumorum pontificum, of Benedict sixteenth. The almost mocking tone of the bombastic quotation from Lumen Gentium will not have escaped notice. Just when Bergoglio recognizes the bishops as guardians of the tradition, he asks them to obstruct its highest and most sacred expression of prayer. Anyone who tries to find within the folds of the text some eskimo some sleight of hand or trickery, to circumvent the text should know that the draft sent to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith for revision was extremely more drastic than the final text. A confirmation, if ever it were needed, that no particular pressure was needed, from the historic enemies of the Tridentine liturgy, beginning with the scholars of Santa Anselmo to convince His Holiness to try his hand at what he does best, demolishing. They make a wasteland and call it peace, see Tacitus. The one constant of the attitude noted in its most brazen and arrogant form in Traditionis Custodis is duplicity and lies, a duplicity that is a facade, of course, daily disavowed by positions that are anything but prudent in favor of a very specific group, which, for the sake of brevity, we can identify with the ideological left, indeed with its most recent evolution in a globalist, ecologist, transhuman, and LGBTQ key. We have come to the point that even simple people with little knowledge of doctrinal issues understand that we have a non-Catholic Pope, at least in the strict sense of the term, This poses some problems of a canonical nature that are not inconsiderable, which is not up to us to solve, but which sooner or later will have to be addressed. Another significant element of this pontificate taken to its extreme consequences with traditionis custodis, is Bergoglio's ideological extremism, an extremism that is deplored in words when it concerns others, but which shows itself in its most violent and ruthless expression when it is he himself who puts into practice against clergy and laity connected to the ancient rite and to faithful tradition. Towards the society of St. Pius X, he shows himself willing to make concessions and to establish a relationship as good neighbors, but towards the poor priests and faithful who have to endure a thousand humiliations and blackmail in order to beg for a Mass in Latin, he shows no understanding, no humanity. This behavior is not accidental. Archbishop Lefebvre's movement enjoys its own autonomy and economic independence, and for this reason, it has no reason to fear retaliation or commissioners from the Holy See. But the bishops, priests, and clerics incarnated in the dioceses or religious orders know that hanging over them is the sword of Damocles of removal from office, dismissal from the ecclesiastical state, and the deprivation of their very means of subsistence. Those who have had the opportunity to follow my speeches and declarations know well what my position is on the Council and on the Novus Ordo, but they also know what my background is, my curriculum in the service of the Holy See, and my relatively recent awareness of the apostasy and the crisis in which we find ourselves. For this reason, I would like to reiterate my understanding for the spiritual path for those who, precisely because of this situation, cannot or are not yet able to make a radical choice, such as celebrating or attending exclusively the Mass of St. Pius V. Many priests discover the treasures of the venerable Tridentine liturgy only when they celebrate it and allow themselves to be permeated by it, and it is not uncommon for an initial curiosity towards the extraordinary form, certainly fascinating due to the solemnity of the rite, to change quickly into the awareness of the depth of the words, the clarity of the doctrine, the incomparable spirituality that it gives birth to and nourishes in our souls. There is a perfect harmony that words cannot express, and the faithful can understand only in part but which touches the heart of the priesthood as God only can. This can be confirmed by my confreres, who have approached the Usus Antiquor after decades of obedient celebration of the Novus Ordo. A world opens up, a cosmos that includes the prayer of the the breviary, with the lessons of Matins, and the commentaries of the Fathers, the cross-references to the text of the Mass, the martyrology in the Hour of Prime. They are sacred words, not because they are expressed in Latin, but Rather, they are expressed in Latin because the Vulgate language would demean them, would profane them, as Dom Geringer wisely observed. These are the words of the bride to the divine bridegroom, words of the soul that lives in intimate union with God, of the soul that lets itself be inhabited by the Most Holy Trinity. Essentially, priestly words in the deepest sense of them, which implies in the priesthood not only the power to offer sacrifice, but to unite in self-offering to the pure, holy, and immaculate victim, It has nothing to do with the ramblings of the Reformed right which is too intent on pleasing the secularized mentality to turn to the majesty of God and the heavenly court, so preoccupied with making itself understandable that one has to give up on communicating anything but trivial obviousness, so careful not to hurt the feelings of heretics as to allow itself to keep silent about the truth, just at the moment in which the Lord God makes himself present on the altar." so fearful of asking the faithful for the slightest commitment as to trivialize the sacred song and any artistic expression linked to worship. The simple fact that Lutheran pastors, modernists, and well-known Freemasons collaborated in the drafting of that rite should make us understand, if not the bad faith and willful misconduct, at least the horizontal mentality, devoid of any supernatural impetus, which motivated the authors of the so-called liturgical reform— who, as far as we know, certainly did not shine with the sanctity with which the sacred authors of the text of the ancient Massale Romanum and of the entire liturgical corpus shine. How many of you priests, and certainly also many lay people, in reciting the wonderful verses of the Pentecost sequence were moved to tears, understanding that your initial predilection for the traditional liturgy had nothing to do with a sterile aesthetic satisfaction, but had evolved into a real spiritual necessity as indispensable as breathing. And how can we explain to those who today would like to deprive you of this priceless good that the blessed rite has made you discover the true nature of your priesthood, and that from it, and only from it, are you able to draw strength and nourishment, to face the commitments of your ministry? How can you make it clear that the obligatory return to the Montinian rite represents an impossible sacrifice for you? Because in the daily battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, it leaves you disarmed, prostrate, and without strength. It is evident that only those who have not celebrated the Mass of St. Pius V can consider it as annoying tinsel of the past, which can be done without. Even many young priests accustomed to the Novus Ordo since their adolescence have understood that the two forms of the rite have nothing in common, and that one is superior to the other as to reveal all its limits and criticisms, to the point of making it almost painful to celebrate. It's not a question of nostalgia, of a cult of the past. Here we are speaking of the life of the soul, its spiritual growth, ascesis, and mysticism, concepts that those who see their priesthood as a profession cannot even understand, just as they cannot understand the agony that a priestly soul feels in seeing the Eucharistic species desecrated during the grotesque rites of communion in the era of the pandemic farce. This is why I find it extremely unpleasant to have to read, in Traditionis Custodis that the reason why Francis believes that the modu proprio Summorum pontificum was promulgated 14 years ago lay only in the desire to heal the so-called schism of Archbishop Lefebvre. Of course, the political calculation may have had its weight, especially at the time of John Paul II, even if at that time the faithful of the Society of St. Pius X were few in number. But the request to be able to restore citizenship to the Mass, which for two millennia nursed the holiness of the faithful and gave the sap of life to Christian civilization, cannot be reduced to a contingent fact. With his motu proprio, Benedict XVI restored the Roman apostolic Mass to the Church, declaring that it had never been abolished. Indirectly, he admitted that there was an abuse by Paul VI, when in order to give authority to his right, he ruthlessly forbade the celebration of the traditional liturgy. And even if in that document there may be some incongruent elements, such as the coexistence of the two forms of the same rite, we can believe that these have served to allow for the diffusion of the extraordinary form, without affecting the ordinary one. In other times, it would have seemed incomprehensible to let a Mass steeped in misunderstandings and omissions to be celebrated, when the authority of the pontiff could have simply restored the ancient rite. But today, with the heavy burden of Vatican II, and with the now widespread secularized mentality, even the mere licity of celebrating the Tridentine Mass without permission can be considered an undeniable good. A good that is visible to all due to the abundant fruits it brings to the communities where it is celebrated and we can also believe that it would have brought even more fruits if only more Pontificum had been applied in all its points, and with a spirit of true ecclesial communion. Francis knows well that the survey taken among bishops all over the world did not yield negative results, although the formulation of the questions made clear what answers he wanted to receive. That consultation was a pretext, in order to make people believe that the decision he made was inevitable and the fruit of a choral request from the Episcopate, We all know that if Bergoglio wants to obtain a result, he does not hesitate to resort to force, lies, and sleight of hand. The events of the last synods have demonstrated this beyond all reasonable doubt, with a post-synodical exhortation drafted even before the vote on the Instrumentorum Laboris. Also in this case, the pre-established purpose was to abolish the Tridentine Mass, and the prophesys, that is, the apparent excuse, had to be the supposed instrumental use of the Roman Missal of 1962, Often characterized by a rejection not only of the liturgical form, but of Vatican II itself, he quotes Francis here, in all honesty, one can perchance accuse the Society of St. Pius X of this instrumental use, which has every right to affirm what each of us knows well, that the mass of St. Pius V is incompatible with the post-conciliar ecclesiology and doctrine, but the Society is not affected by the motu proprio and has always celebrated using the 1962 Missal, precisely by virtue of that inalienable right which Benedict XVI recognized, which was not created ex nihilo in 2007. The diocesan priest who celebrates Mass in the Church assigned to him by the bishop, and who every week must undergo the third degree through the accusations of zealous progressive Catholics only because he has dared to recite the Confidior prior to administering communion to the faithful, knows very well that he cannot speak ill of the Novos Ordo, or Vatican II, because at the first syllable he would already be summoned to the Curia, and sent to a parish church lost in the mountains. That silence, always painful and almost always perceived by everyone as more eloquent than many words, is the price he has to pay in order to have the possibility of celebrating the Holy Mass of all time, in order not to deprive the faithful of the graces that it pours down upon the church and the world." And what is even more absurd is that while we hear it said with impunity that the Tridentine Mass ought to be abolished because it is incompatible with the ecclesiology of Vatican II, as soon as we say the same thing, that is, that the Montanian Mass is incompatible with Catholic ecclesiology, we are immediately made the object of condemnation, and our affirmation is used as evidence against us before the revolutionary tribunal of Santa Marta. I wonder what sort of spiritual disease could have struck the shepherds in the last few decades in order to lead them to become, and not loving fathers, but ruthless censors of their priests, officials constantly watching and ready to revoke all rights in virtue of a blackmail they did not even try to conceal. This climate of suspicion does not in the least contribute to the serenity of many good priests, when the good they do is always placed under the lens of functionaries who consider the faithful linked to the tradition as a danger, as an annoying presence to be tolerated so long as it doesn't stand out too much. But how can we even conceive of a church in which The good is systematically hindered and whoever does it is viewed with suspicion and kept under control i therefore understand the scandal of many catholics faithful and not a few priests in the face of this shepherd who instead of smelling his sheep angrily beats them with a stick the misunderstanding of being able to enjoy a right as if it were a gracious concession may also be found in public affairs where the state permits itself to authorize travel, school lessons, the opening of activities, and the performance of work as long as one undergoes inoculation with the experimental genetic serum. Thus, just as the extraordinary form is granted on the condition of accepting the council and the reform mass, so also in the civil sphere the rights of citizens are granted on the condition of accepting the pandemic, the narrative around it, the vaccination and tracking systems. It is not surprising that in many cases it is precisely priests and bishops, and Bergoglio himself, who ask that people be vaccinated in order to access the sacraments. The perfect synchrony of action on both sides is disturbing, to say the least. But where, then, is the instrumental use of the Missali Romanum? Should we not rather speak of the instrumental use of the Missal of Paul VI, which, to paraphrase Bergoglio's words, is even more characterized by a growing rejection, not only the Preconciliar liturgical tradition, but of all the ecumenical councils prior to Vatican II? On the other hand, is it not precisely Francis who considers as a threat to the council the simple fact that a mass may be celebrated which repudiates and condemns all the doctrinal deviations of Vatican do? Never in the history of the church did a council or a liturgical reform constitute a point of rupture between what came before and what came after. Never in the course of these two millennia have the Roman Pontiffs deliberately drawn an ideological border between the Church that preceded them and the one they had to govern canceling and contradicting the magisterium of their predecessors. The before and after, instead, became an ex- obsession, both of those who prudently insinuated doctrinal errors behind equivocal expressions, as well as those who, with the boldness of those who believe that they have won, propagated Vatican II as the 1789 of the Church, as a prophetic and revolutionary event. Before 7th of July 2007, in response to the spread of the traditional rite, a well-known pontifical master of ceremonies replied piquantly, pe- there is no going back. And yet, apparently, with Francis, one can go back on the promulgation of some more pontificum, and how, if it serves to preserve power and to prevent the good from spreading. It is a slogan which sinisterly echoes the cry of nothing will be as it was before of the pandemic farce. Francis's admission of an alleged division between the faithful linked to the Tridentine liturgy and those who, largely out of habit or resignation, have adapted to the Reformed liturgy is revealing He does not seek to heal this division by recognizing full rights to a right that is objectively better with respect to the Montinian right, but precisely in order to prevent the ontological superiority of the mass of St. Pius V from becoming evident, and to prevent the criticisms of the reformed right and the doctrine it expresses from emerging. He prohibits it, he labels it divisive, he confines it to Indian reservations, trying to limit its diffusion as much as possible so that it will disappear completely in the name of the cancel culture of which the conciliar revolution was the unfortunate forerunner. Not being able to tolerate that the Novus Ordo and Vatican II emerged inexorably defeated by their confrontation with the Vetus Ordo and the perennial Catholic Magisterium, the only solution that can be adapt- adopted is to cancel every trace of tradition, relegating it to the nostalgic refuge of some irreducible octogenarian or a clique of eccentrics, and presenting it, as a pretext, as the ideological manifesto of a minority of fundamentalists. On the other hand, constructing a media version consistent with the system to be repeated ad nauseam in order to indoctrinate the masses is the recurring element, not only in the ecclesiastical sphere, but also in the political and civil sphere, so that it appears with disconcerting evidence that the deep church and deep state are nothing other than two parallel tracks which run in the same direction and have as their final destination the New World Order, with its religion and its prophet. The division is there, obviously, but it does not come from good Catholics and clergy who remain faithful to the doctrine of all time, but rather from those who have replaced orthodoxy with heresy and the holy sacrifice with a fraternal agape. That division is not new today, but dates back to the 60s, when the spirit of the council openness to the world and interreligious dialogue turned 2,000 years of Catholicity into straw and revolutionized the entire ecclesial body, persecuting and ostracizing the refractory. Yet that division, accomplished by bringing doctrinal and liturgical confusion into the heart of the Church, did not seem so deplorable then. While today, in full apostasy, they are paradoxically considered divisive, who ask not for the explicit condemnation of the Vatican II and the Novus Ordo, but simply the tolerance of the Mass in the extraordinary form, in the name of the much vaunted multifaceted pluralism. Significantly, even in the civilized world, the protection of minorities is valid only when they serve to demolish traditional society while well, such protection is ignored when it would guarantee the legitimate rights of honest citizens. And it has become clear that under the pretext of the protection of minorities, the only intention was to weaken the majority of the good. While now the majority is made up of those who are corrupt, the minority of the good can be crushed without mercy. Recent history does not lack illuminating precedents in this regard. In my opinion, it is not so much that this or that point of the modu proprio that is disconcerting, but rather its overall tyrannical nature accompanied by a substantial falsity of the arguments put forward to justify the decisions imposed. Scandal is also given by the abuse of power by an authority that has its own raison d'etre, not in impeding or limiting the graces that are bestowed on its adherents to the church, but rather in promoting those graces, not in taking away glory from the divine majesty with a right that winks at the Protestants, but rather in hindering that glory perfectly not in sowing doctrinal and moral errors, but rather in condemning and eradicating them. Here, too, the parallel with what takes place in the civil world is all too evident. Our rulers abuse their power just as our prelates do, imposing norms and limitations in violation of the most basic principles of the law. Furthermore, it is precisely those who are constituted in authority, on both fronts, who often avail themselves of a mere de facto recognition by the rank and file. Citizens and faithful, even when the methods by which they have taken power violate, if not the letter, then at least the spirit of the law. The case of Italy, in which a non elected government legislates on the obligation to be vaccinated and on the Green Pass, violating the Italian Constitution and the natural rights of the Italian people, does not seem very dissimilar to the situation in which the Church finds herself with a resigned pontiff replaced by Jorge Mario Bergoglio, chosen, or at least appreciated and supported by the St. Gallen Mafia and the ultra-progressive Episcopate. It remains obvious that there is a profound crisis of authority, both civil and religious, in which those who exercise power do so contrary to those to whom they are supposed to protect, and above all, contrary to the purpose for which that authority has been established. I think that it has been understood that both civil society and the Church suffer from the same cancer that struck the former with the French Revolution and the latter with the Second Vatican Council. In both cases, Masonic thought is at the foundation of the systemic demolition of the institution and its replacement with a simulacrum that maintains its external appearance, hierarchical structure, and coercive force, but with proposed diametrically opposite to those it ought to have." At this point, citizens on the one hand and the faithful on the other find themselves in the condition of having to disobey earthly authority. In order to obey a divine authority which governs nations in the church, obviously the reactionaries, that is, those who do not accept the perversion of authority and want to remain faithful to the church of Christ and to their homeland, constitute an element of dissent that cannot be tolerated in any way, and therefore they must be discredited, delegitimized, threatened, and deprived of their rights in the name of a quote-unquote public good that is no longer the bonum commune, but but its contrary. Whether accused of conspiracy theories, traditionalism, or fundamentalism, these few survivors of a world that they want to make disappear constitutes a threat to the accomplishment of the global plan, just as the most crucial moment of realization. This is why power is reacting in such an open, brazen, and violent way. The evidence of the fraud risks being understood by a greater number of people, of bringing them together in an organized resistance, of breaking down the wall of silence and ferocious censorship imposed by the mainstream media. We can therefore understand the violence of the reactions of authority and prepare ourselves by a strong and determined opposition, continuing to avail ourselves of those rights that have been abusively and illicitly denied us. Of course, we may find ourselves having to exercise those rights in an incomplete way when we are denied the opportunity to travel if we do not have our green pass or if the bishop prohibits us from celebrating the Mass of all time in a church in his diocese, but our resistance to abuses of authority will still be able to count on the graces that the Lord will not cease to grant us, in particular the virtue of fortitude that is so indispensable in times of tyranny. If on the one hand we can see how the persecution of dissenters is well organized and planned, on the other hand, we cannot fail to recognize the fragmentation of the opposition. Bergoglio knows well that every movement of dissent must be silenced, above all by creating internal division and isolating priests and the faithful. A fruitful and fraternal collaboration between diocese and clergy, religious, and the Ecclesia Dei Institutes is something he must avert, because it would permit the diffusion of a knowledge of the ancient rite, as well as a precious help in its ministry, but this would mean the tr- taking, making the Tridentine Mass a normality in the daily life of the faithful, something that is not tolerable for Francis. For this reason, diocesan clergy are left at the mercy of their ordinaries, while the Ecclesia Day institutes are placed under the authority of the Congregation of Religious, as a sad prelude to a destiny that has already been sealed. Let us not forget the f- fate that befell the flourishing religious orders, guilty of being blessed with numerous vocations, born and nurtured precisely thanks to the hated traditional liturgy and the faithful observance of the rule, This is why certain forms of insistence on the ceremonial aspects of these celebrations risk legitimizing the provisions of the Commissar and play Bergoglio's game. Even in the civil world, it is precisely by encouraging certain excesses by the dissenters that those in power marginalize them and legitimize repressive measures towards them. Just think of the case of the no-vax movements and how easy it is to discredit the legitimate protests of citizens by emphasizing the eccentricities and inconsistencies of a few. And it is all too easy to condemn a few agitated people who, out of exasperation, set fire to a vaccine center, overshadowing millions of honest persons who take to the streets in order not to be branded with a health passport or fired if they do not allow themselves to be vaccinated. Another important element for all of us is the necess- necessity of giving visibility to our composed protest and ensuring a form of co- coordination for public action. With abolition of Samora Pontificum, we find ourselves taken back 20 years. This unhappy decision by Bergoglio to cancel the motu proprio of Pope Benedict is doomed to an inexorable failure. "...because it touches the very soul of the Church, of which the Lord himself is Pontiff and High Priest, and it is not given that the entire Episcopate, as we are seeing in the last few days with relief, will be willing to passively submit to forms of authoritarianism that certainly do not contribute to the bringing peace to souls. The Code of Canon Law guarantees the bishops the possibility of dispensing their faithful from particular or universal laws under certain conditions." Secondly, the people of God have well understood the subversive nature of traditionis custodis, and are instinctively led to want to get to know something that is, arouses such disapproval among progressives. Let us not be surprised, therefore, if we soon begin to see the faithful coming from ordinary parish life, and even those far from the church finding their way to the churches where the traditional Mass is celebrated. It will be our duty, whether as ministers of God or as simple faithful, To show firmness and serene resistance to such abuse, walking along the way of our own little calvary with a supernatural spirit, which the new high priests and scribes of the people mock us and label us as fanatics, it will be our humility, the silent offering of injustices towards us, and the example of a life consistent with the creed that we profess that will merit the triumph of the Catholic Mass and the conversion of many souls. And let us remember that since we have received much, much will be demanded of us. What father among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent instead? See the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. Now we can understand the meaning of these words, considering with pain and torment of heart the cynicism of, fa- of a father who gives us the stones of a soulless liturgy, the serpents of a corrupted doctrine, and the scorpions of an adulterated morality. And who reaches the point of dividing the rock of the Lord between those who accept the Novus Ordo and those who want to remain faithful to the mass of our fathers, exactly as civil rulers are now pitting the vaccinated and unvaccinated against one another? When our Lord entered Jerusalem, sealed on a donkey's colt, while the crowd was spreading cloaks as he passed, the Pharisees asked him, Master, rebuke your disciples. The Lord answered them, I say to you that if these are silent, the stones will cry out. See Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 40. For sixty years, the stones of our churches have been crying out, from which the holy sacrifice has been twice prescribed. The marble of the altars, the columns of the basilicas, and the soaring vaults of the cathedrals cry out as well, because those stones, consecrated to the worship of the true God, today are abandoned and deserted, or profaned by abhorrent rites, or transformed into parking lots and supermarkets, precisely as a result of that council that we insist on defending. Let us also cry out, we who are living stones of the temple of God, let us cry with faith to the Lord, so that he may give a voice to his disciples, who today are mute, and so that the intolerable theft for which the administrators of the Lord's vineyard are responsible may be repaired. But in order that the theft to be repaired, it is necessary that we show ourselves to be worthy of the treasures that have been stolen from us. Let us try to do this by our holiness of life, by giving examples of the virtues, by prayer and the frequent reception of the sacraments, and let us not forget that there are hundreds of good priests who still know the meaning of the sacred unction by which they have been ordained ministers of Christ and dispensers of the ministry of God. The Lord deigns to descend on our altars, even when they are erected in cellars or attics. Anything to the contrary, notwithstanding. Signed, Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò, the 28th of July, 2021. The Feasts of Saints Nazarius and Celsus, St. Victor I, and St. Innocent I. And uh, over on the YouTube side, let me know what you thought about this in the comments, please. As always, pray for the church. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.